As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Warning. This episode includes graphic descriptions of violence and coarse language. It is not suitable for children and listener discretion is advised. If you've managed to make it through the last couple of years without hearing about the docu-series Don't Fuck With Cats, well honestly, where have you been? The Netflix docuseries chronicles how Deanna Thompson and John Green crowdsourced an amateur investigation into a series of animal cruelty acts committed by Canadian porn actor Luca Magnotta, ultimately culminating in his murder of Chinese international student Jun Lin. In this episode of Inside Crime and Investigation, we have an exclusive interview with the internet super sleuth herself, Deanna Thompson, aka Body Movin, about trying to hunt down Luca and her experience investigating this case, as well as others. I'm really excited to be in London and maybe uh, talk to some of the fans there and meet people there. And um, I've never been, so I'm also really excited for the sightseeing aspect. Um, but as far as CrimeCon is concerned, I'm re- it's really fluid and up in the air at the moment. Um, I will do pretty much anything they want. You know, like um, if they want to do a Q&A session, if they want to do like a how-to panel, if they want to um, talk just about my experience maybe with Netflix, I don't know. It's kind of an open book. There's going to be an opportunity to meet a lot of fans there. What sort of questions do you get from fans who've watched the show? Anything outrageous? You know, it's so weird. Yeah, it's it's a, the, the two biggest questions I get is, um, and you have to have seen the documentary to know what these are about, but they ask me, who's the second set of hands in the snake video 
And the other question I get is, how did he know where you worked? Or did he show up and, you know, film that video of you at work? Those are the two biggest ones. And the answers to those questions, so this, the snake python hand video was a separate video. It was released weeks and weeks later. It wasn't part of the original video. So in the documentary, they kind of make it, or his mother kind of makes it, I don't say his name, Shunlin's killer makes it seem like, his mom makes it seem like it's part of the video. And that, you know, who are these second set of hands in the video then? No, it was a separate video released weeks and weeks later, and it was a neighbor. It was like totally innocent. It, it wasn't even part of the same video. Uh, the second question is, how did he know where you worked? Well, I wasn't exactly trying to hide my identity. I, I switched back and forth between Deanna and body and Deanna and body and Deanna and body all the time. Everybody knew that I was Deanna. I was working on other things on body that nobody knew who I was, but with this case, everybody knew who I was. Um, additionally, um, he never showed up. It was just a video he found on the internet that he took. It was somebody else's vacation video. He was never here. He was never, I was never in danger or anything like that. But I, I learned a lot from it by releasing who I was and not, you know, and not trying to hide it. You know, that was a mistake on my part. So you learn from that, but he, he was never here. Talking about that, were you ever actually scared during your investigation? Yeah. When, um, when he was on the run after he had killed Jun Lin, you know, we didn't 100% know where he was. We knew that he took a flight to Paris. That's about all we knew. The police got with us in Montreal, and uh, they were really not helpful in terms of our safety. You know, like, hey, is he coming here? You know, what's going on? All we knew is that he was in Paris or France at least. And so when he was on the run, I definitely was concerned because the RCMP months before this happened uh, told us that Jeanlin's killer would not be able to leave Canada. And watching him board a plane to Paris, you know, really kind of was like, okay, Canada, what the hell? You know, you said he wasn't going to be able to leave Canada. What, you know, what's going on? So I, you know, I, I figured he'd be able to leave France with no problem. So I was a little concerned when he was on the run, but I wasn't like terrified. I wasn't um, scared. I was more afraid that he would do something where I work. And, you know, I work with very professional people. I have a very professional job. You wouldn't know that by looking at me, but I have a very professional job. Um, and I work with very professional people who are like high class and totally opposite of me. And I was really concerned that, you know, he would do something to, to them to hurt me. I've been, uh, you know, employed with the same company for decades and, you know, it's a family. So I was, I was very concerned that he would do something to some of my coworkers. So I had to tell my boss, I had to let them know. I had to let surveillance know. I had to let security know. I had to let, you know, all these people that I work with know what was going on. And it was very mortifying, but, uh, yeah, I was a little scared, but not, I mean, I was checking my back seat when I got in my car. I, you know, I live in the United States and we are crazy about guns here. So I did carry a gun and I still do to this day um, because, you know, killers have fans and they're a little wacko. So um, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's hard to answer that question. Was I scared because it was 10 years ago? You have to remember it was 10 years ago, but 
I'd like to sit here and be a total badass and say, no, I wasn't scared at all. But I mean, I was a little scared. Well, um, it was one of the, Don't Fight With Cats is one of Netflix top screen documentaries of 2019. What was it, what was it like to be involved in something like that? I mean, did it change your life in any way? And what was it like to take part? I mean, it didn't change my life in any way. I, it's very surreal. I didn't believe it would happen, number one. I didn't, I didn't think it would actually happen. I didn't, then I didn't think people would watch it because I didn't think the name was good. And then I didn't think people would like me because I'm a total dork. You know, I didn't think people would respond the way they did. Um, and so that was really surreal and kind of like surprising because I started getting recognized and stuff. And like, I would just be eating dinner and business pre-pandemic and people would, the waitresses would come up to me or the bartender or like people. And it's mostly like younger women who come up to me and they're like, oh my God, you're amazing. And um, we want to be like you when we get, and it's really sweet. You know, it's been, it's been very surreal. Um, and I love, I love that somehow this computer nerd empowered young women to, you know, do some research on the internet and stop uh, believing everything at face value, especially men at face value. Um, so, I mean, I do love that part of it, but it hasn't changed my life. Like I, we didn't make any money or nothing like that off the, off the show. Um, that's another thing that we learned during this process is that uh, for documentaries to be like legit and like taken seriously and whatnot, the production companies really don't, they don't pay you anything to be in them. Um, because then you're beholden to the production company, right? So like, I wouldn't be able to sit here with you today and talk to you about my experience had I gotten paid like a substantial amount of money or any money at all, really, because I would have been beholden to this production company, but didn't change my life in any significant way. Like I'm still going to work every single day. I'm still, you know, uh, single and, you know, everything else. I'm not, I'm not, I don't have my name on like the Hollywood Walk of Fame or nothing like that, but um, the day-to-day -day interactions with like the people who see me in the grocery store or in my neighborhood or at the casino or at hockey games and stuff has been really nice. Well, uh, going back to what you said earlier, I think a lot of our fans want you to have your own spin-off series where you uh, investigate mysteries. You've been incredibly influential. The amount of memes you've been putting on your Facebook page, you know, so that really made an impact in terms of that. It did. And, you know, there were a lot of people that reached out that, um, Hey, can you host the show for us? It's an investigation show on, you know, whatever channel or whatever. And I had to decline all those because we were under contract for 18 months with a production company and we weren't really allowed to do anything else. But that time's expired, so reach out to me. So do you think it inspired a lot of women to try and think they might get involved in law enforcement or, you know, sort of investigation, do you think? Yeah, I do. It It's so weird. I didn't think that would happen. And not just not just law enforcement and investigation or whatever, but like a lot of women get like romance scammed and um, just my friends alone will message me and be like, Deanna, is this, can you tell me this guy's catfishing me or, you know, things like that. So a lot of women I think are, are a little bit more empowered to, especially in, in, in a world where you meet men on, you know, dating websites now. I think a lot more of them are willing to, look into who they're actually talking to rather than taking them at face value. And I know that that seems insignificant, but some of, some of these women are getting scammed out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, I mean, that's been a pretty cool um, side effect of this is that women have been like 
oh, I learned about EXIF data from you and I learned how to, you know, tell somebody's picture where it came from. And I, I don't know, it's just been really cool. I, I like that women are um, interested, I guess. It's, I don't know, it's been, it's been very cool. Your girlfriends must, must come to you and be like, oh, there's this new guy I've met. Tell me to give it a tea, you know? Okay, it literally, it literally just happened yesterday. And my girlfriend messaged me. She's like, can you tell me like what's going on with this guy? And I had, you know, she gave me his phone number, his um, pictures. And it was like a famous like gun model. Like he's a weapon model. And his, his phone number was owned by a company that specifically does voice over IP. And I'm like, babe, this guy's from Africa. Like, come on, get with it. So it's been, it's been really cool. So going back to the series, um, what's interesting is obviously a very interesting documentary about true crime investigation and that, but I think there's another element which is about internet culture as well, what it tells us. How much do you think the killer of Jun Lin was actually a product of the internet? Gosh, you know, okay, so he started garnering attention long before uh, we came into the picture. He, he, one of his first uh, ways to get attention was that he was trying to get Family Guy banned in Canada. And I know that seems silly, but he made a bunch of YouTube channels in regards to it and why it should be banned. And people started paying him attention. Like, how dare you? Like, how, you know, what do you mean get Family Guy banned? We love Family Guy. You don't have the right to say what, you know. So, and that was in like 2007, I want to say, three years before he started with the cats. And additionally, in 2010, I believe at the beginning of 2010, I witnessed something happen on one of the chans. And if you're part of internet culture back then, you know what the chans are, the 4chan and, and all that. They're not the same as they were back then. They're way different now, but a lot of things happened on the chans. And one of the things that happened was uh, this dog head appeared. A, a, a woman was holding a dog head in like a kitchen in a picture and saying that the dog had gotten run over and that she was going to do taxidermy on the, on the dog. Well, for the chance exploded. Okay. With like outrage. All right. And I just kind of watched all this happen. Well, it turns out, and I watched this happen by the way, within like 24 hours, they had, they had found her MySpace. you know, this is how old this was. They found her MySpace um, using the exit data from the phone and pictures she had posted of her house on MySpace, the kitchen cabinets, the tile, matching it all up, whatever. Anyway, she really did, the dog really did get run over um, and she was interested in taxidermy. You know, she's kind of a weird kid. Um, I'm, not I'm not knocking it. I'm a weird chick. I totally get it. Um, she's kind of a weird kid. But anyway, she got a lot of attention. And she was into like, kind of like the furry, I don't know if it's furry, but it's like the wolf culture, the wolf packs. I don't know. I, I'm not, I'm not saying this to offend anybody. I really just don't know what it's called. Um, and she, they're, they're start, she started setting up wolf packs all around the, the, the country. Her name was Whoopi Blackheart. And she was in the news in the San Antonio newspapers. She was all over the TV shows. I mean, she got a lot of attention. And this is right before he came into the, the picture. So I do think, and he definitely had knowledge of the Chans because he released a lot of photos on the Chans when we were looking for him. 
So I do think he was part of witnessing that maybe. And that was a big part of internet culture back in like 2010. And so is he a product of internet culture? A hundred percent. And that's where he got 99% of his attention. And even though he was socially awkward and, and, you know, a weird guy, um, he definitely tried to mold his personality to fit in with those cultures. Uh, I wrote like a 25 page dossier on him that we released um, before Jean-Lin was murdered. And I talk about the Wolfie Blackheart situation and internet culture and his psychology. Um, and I, we, de we definitely did a deep dive into him that the documentary didn't talk about, but it's on our website. You can download it if you want. Um, it's just interesting, all the things that actually amateur sleuths basically came up with that were all really accurate when he was arrested. But anyway, he was definitely part of internet. That was a very, very long way of saying, yes, he was definitely part of internet culture. Yeah, he seems almost like, like a dark influencer. You know, he's trying to get all the trappings of being an influencer, but he's getting it through. Right. And the thing is, and you're right, he was a dark influencer, but he wasn't an influencer. No, nobody was giving him any attention. Like nobody. And that's the other thing, too, that a lot of people don't understand is everyone's like, oh, you gave him the attention he wanted. Not really. Everything that we had, everything that we were doing was in our secret group of like 10 people. Like he never knew about it. Do you know what I mean? Like he never knew about it unless we wanted him to know things that we wanted him to know we would release into the bigger group with, you know, 15, 16,000 people, the one that he was in. But most of the stuff we did was behind the scenes. Nobody ever knew about it. He didn't know about it, you know. So he, he, he wanted attention, but he really wasn't getting it. And I think when he, I think, and I don't know, I think when he saw things like Wolfie get attention, you know, and then there was another incident on the chans called, uh, I think it was Dusty the Cat where that's what it was called the dusty the cat incident and this this kid was beating his cat and within two days or three days or so um they had found him and you know took the cat away and all that good stuff and that's when rule zero was added to the list of of rules from the chans um the don't fuck with cats or we'll find you rule um it was Dusty the Cat. And every that's another question people ask me. I don't know what these rules are. Well, they're really old and they're from the chans and it's really an unwritten set of rules and rule zero was added after Dusty the Cat. So I think I think he saw all this stuff happening and, and Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Thought, you know, the family guy thing was a way for him to get attention. Even though it was negative, he still got attention. And I think he saw those kind of things happening on the chans and was like, okay, this is something I can do. I can kill some cats. And when we were, we, and we stopped giving him the attention I mean, he, you know, he wasn't getting attention from us publicly. 
and uh, his next step, you know. Going back to the animals, given the fact you're an animal lover and you, you got into this to protect animals and, and, and go after someone who was committing animal cruelty, how did you deal with the fact that you had to spend, forensically spend a lot of time looking at these, these images of, of horrible abuse? How did you sort of process that and how did you live with that during those 18 months? Well, one thing that I, and I talk about this in the documentary, is I didn't watch the videos. And you can take a video and you can process it out to images, you know, so a five minute video where somebody's killing cats, if you can't sit through it, you can dump it out to, you know, 6,000 pictures and those 6,000 pictures make a movie, right? So that's what I did. I just didn't, I couldn't, I just couldn't sit through the pic, the, the actual images. And then you can also dump the sound out to like an MP3 file and listen to that. So forensically, that's what I would do. Um, emotionally, you know, initially I was, I was sort of like, oh my God, what the hell, you know, what's going on? But then I sort of was like, okay, I never remembered the Wolfie Blackheart investigation and how they were able to find her and how, you know, they did, the, they used technology to find her. And, you know, I've been in that field for decades. Okay, I know what to do. So I just sort of set my emotions aside. And I think you kind of have to do that. You, I mean, I'm sure any like cop would tell you that certainly you do get emotionally involved, but you kind of have to set that aside. Um, so that's what I did. I just kind of set it aside. And, you know, our, our little group of 10 people, we really just sort of used each other as like venting and soundboards. You know, so if, if things were to happen, and you have to understand too, he wasn't the only thing we were working on. There were other cases too. So when something would happen, you know, we would just be privately to one another going like, fuck, this is shitty, this is crazy. Um, you know, why, why aren't we getting help? Why does nobody care about this? Um, and that would really help because we were able to bounce things off, emotions off each other. Um, but for the most part, you just kind of have to set it aside and say, just look at this picture and ignore everything around it. Um, and that's what I did. Going back to people not helping, obviously these these images and these films are first uploaded to platforms like YouTube. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, do you think they have a responsibility, the fact they were allowing this content on them? And why was it up to a sort of a group of sort of, I wouldn't say vigilantes, but sort of people who weren't involved in music to, to do their jobs for them and hunt these people down? Do you, do you think there's a lot of responsibility that these, these platforms have? You know, why was it you and your... That's a very, you know, that's a very good question. Um, you know, without them being uploaded to platforms like that, we would never have known about it. But it, he did, he did upload them to other message boards and like some gore websites and whatnot like that. But, you know, the massive influx of people obviously will come from places like YouTube and Instagram and Snapchat and things like that. TikTok, whatever. Do I think that these platforms have a responsibility? Somewhat. When I find things on the internet like this, I don't report them because I want interaction with the with the uploader to happen in the comments, right? I want more people to see it so that they're aware of what's going on. Um, I want to be able to save any and all information I can about the video before it gets taken down. Um, so from like an investigative perspective, I 
don't want it removed, you know, but from like an emotional perspective. Yeah. I think, I think they do have a responsibility to, um, their users to not be assaulted by this, you know, these visual, uh, these visuals, you know, if you're on YouTube and you, you have autoplay turned on and you're, you know, maybe listening to, uh, the weekend or something, you don't want your, the next video to be some dude killing cats in a bathtub. So I'm sort of wishy-washy on this answer only because my emotional side is like, no, they need to take it down immediately. But my investigative side is like, leave it up as long as possible so that people can comment and, you know, maybe the, the uploader will interact with them. Um, you know, I don't know. I think this documentary does raise a lot of interesting questions about complicity as well. And for a true crime channel, which people enjoy watching true crime, and I run the true crime website, what is complicity of you know, people enjoying watching this stuff and popularizing it, you know? Well, yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm a guilty. I am a true crime fanatic. You know, I have investigation. You know, here in America, we have the ID channel. And it's true crime all the time, you know. Um, the Oxygen Network, you know, all those. Those are always on in my house. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm a fan. I am. And one thing I think, though, that true crime needs to maybe get a better hold on is not necessarily just the crime itself, but the victims. You know, I think oftentimes the victims are kind of left out of the story. It's just, you know, her her leg was cut off, her arms were cut off. That's all you ever hear about them. You don't really hear about what they could have been in life and you know how much their family loved them and how much they meant to their friends and what a good cousin they were i don't know i you know um you just hear about the, the horrible things that happened to them and i think that's why it's so important you mentioned jim lynn and you don't mention his name at all and you really bring it back to him and you know i think that's really how you, you should approach treatment we talked a lot about jim lynn in the documentary um but they edited it out, which I'm okay with because they had his friend Benjamin come into the documentary. Um, and a lot, a lot of people are like, you only cared about cats, you only cared about cats. And I'm like, bitch, you have no idea what you're talking about. Um, we cared immensely about what happened to Jin Lin. Um, we were very sad about Jin Lin and we consumed all the information we could about Jin Lin. We spent an entire month trying to figure out where he had put Jinlin's head because um, he wasn't telling the police where Jinlin's head was. Um, so the next person that tells me that I didn't care about Jinlin, if they do it to me in person, they better duck. You know, his, his friend Benjamin was rightly the person to talk about Jinlin in the documentary. He's the one who knew him and loved him in person and um, knew about you know his ins and outs and it, it it's it wasn't my place in the documentary to talk about what a wonderful person he was and how much his family loved him and how he was like the great hope of his family that was benjamin's place to do it so um while i would have loved to have said that in the documentary it got cut out because rightfully so benjamin said it for me you know what i mean I do think that victims need a little bit more attention. Um, I think some of the proceeds from these kinds of shows need to go to the family of the victim. I think any ad revenue that 
true crime show gets should go to some sort of victim resource. I'm not sure. Um, I'm certainly not the one. I just, I just think that victims kind of get lost in these stories. However, that said, I do love the forensics of true crime. And I do love the psychology of what makes people kill for what, for whatever reason. I don't know why, but I think women particularly are just fascinated by this. I mean, I consume every true crime documentary that comes out, every show, every snippet I can. Um, and I know all my girlfriends do too. And we're obsessed. It's, it's insane. But I just wish that the industry, the true crime industry would just give a little bit more homage to the victims, that's all. I'm just coming up to a couple more questions. I understand you've got, you probably still have to go back to work at some yeah. point, but um, <laughs> what the documentary really drew attention to was the fact that was that link between cruelty to animals and, and serial killing. And I think that really important, that, that, drew, that really drew attention to people's attention. Um, <gasps> yes. Well, and that's one of the reasons we decided to do it. We weren't gonna do the documentary at all. Um, because we just didn't want to give him any more attention but then we were like well this is kind of a big topic a lot of the times when you read a book or you watch a television show about true crime they'll say things like you know richard uh jeffrey dahmer killed you know animals in his backyard and then they just kind of gloss over it and then move on to the next thing they don't often talk about like the triad of killing like there's bedwetting stuttering and animal killing and so I don't know if it's called the triad. Somebody can correct me and get back to me on that, but I think it's called the triad. It's just sort of glossed over. You know, they don't really deep dive into that. And so we wanted to do that with this, you know, kind of deep dive into one part of that triad. A really big part of that triad is animal killing. Um, and that's what we're hoping, what we're going to be doing in, in CrimeCon in Austin, um, in the United States is the, uh, Mervette Douglas, who is part of our team, John Green and I are going to be on a panel with uh, like a forensic psychologist, and we're going to be talking about animal abuse in relation to crime, because not only is it with killing, it's also like a big part of domestic abuse. Um, a lot of times men and women will use their pets as leverage against their spouse in domestic situations, like violent situations, like they'll kill their dog to scare their wife, um, things like that. So we're gonna be talking all about how animal abuse is uh, sort of the backbone of, of crime, which I'm really excited about. The Animal Beta Project is obviously your work on sort of exposing um, other abusers. Can you tell me about other sort of big successes you've had? Obviously, you can't ongoing investigations, but can you, can you share any sort of big successes? Um, well, we've had a lot of little cases, like little dog fighting rings, um, cock fighting rings, um, you know, cat people abusing their dogs on YouTube, uh, things like that. But one of the bigger ones we had was uh, the first. In 2010, Barack Obama made Animal Crush a federal crime in the United States. In 2015, I think, we got a series of videos sent to us um, that were involved the same woman killing cats, dogs, and bunnies, and uh, puppies on, on camera uh, with knives in her feet and crushing them with her high heels and things like that. 
um, which is a federal crime in the United States. And from the videos, we were, we were able to tell that they were in Houston. And from that, we were able to look at uh, people that lived in Houston and found the couple that were making these, these videos. And it took us two days, like two days to find these people. And uh, Merbet, who is uh, gonna be joining us in Austin, was the one who actually identified her, like initially. Anyway, they got arrested within, 20, within 48 hours and they, they were sentenced federally. She got 10 years because she testified against the producer um, and the producer got 50 years in federal prison. It just got reduced to 20 years, whatever, but he got 50 years initially. And that was like a really big case for us because it was the first case prosecuted in the United States that way. So that was a big deal. Um, and that's another thing that we'll be talking about too. Maybe I'll be talking about that more because I think it interests me more is a lot of these women are often victims themselves. Um, they're either like traffic in a traffic situation. They're in, you know, from a marginalized community. Um, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting and sad stuff. Um, but the animal abuse is just kind of like an offshoot of all that. Um, but that was a, that was a really big case for us. And, um, for us, it was probably the biggest case we've done. Wow. Sounds like what a result. And, um, just finally, and I like to, I like to, <laughs> Uh, no, on my final question, and uh, you mentioned earlier early, you're, you're a huge true crime fan yourself. Can you recommend what's your favorite true crime book, podcast, or series for our readers and our listeners, potentially? Okay, I don't want anybody to get mad at me, but I don't listen to podcasts. And it's only because I live so close to where I work. I don't have time. I'm here in like two minutes. Like, I don't have time to listen to, the, the, um, to podcasts. But I used to, and I really liked Sword and Scale. That was really good. And then I listened to Serial at my desk. That was really good. Um, my favorite, like, true crime story is Zodiac. I was obsessed with Zodiac. And I was, like, working on the cipher. I mean, I was into it, like, big time. I was totally obsessed. Um, my favorite show, probably The Keepers. I love Gemma. She is amazing. And I want to be her when I grow up. I thought she was incredible. I love those two ladies. Um, she commented on one of my Facebook posts and I nearly lost my mind. I was so excited. But I, th I thought that was very interesting. Uh, growing up Catholic myself and going to Catholic school and stuff, I thought it was very cool. My favorite book, probably the one that just came out by Michelle McNamara and Billy Jensen. Um, I am kind of friends with Billy. Um, we talk, he sends me cases, he sends me stuff and he wrote a story on us for Rolling Stone. So I kind of started following some of the stuff that he was always reporting on. Um, so that was a very interesting book. Um, and I loved Michelle McNamara. I thought she was brilliant. Um, so that was probably my favorite book. And I think that's it. A huge thank you to Diana for her time and everything she had to say. If this doesn't make you want to get straight on the internet looking everything up for yourself, I'm not really sure what will. Don't forget, you can also meet Diana herself at CrimeCon later this month. CrimeCon is the world's number one true crime event and it's coming to London. 
This one weekend will bring together documentary makers, experts, podcasters, law enforcement professionals, all to meet with true crime enthusiasts like yourself. Delve deeper into cases, examine evidence and hear real life stories from survivors and victims' families. The interview of this episode of Inside Crime and Investigation was hosted by Pete Ross and edited and produced by Chloe Frost.